welcome to Dream Nation. I'm your host, Yulia, and today's episode is brought to you by a really great book. It's called How Soon Is Now. It's written by Daniel Pinchback. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably interested in consciousness and evolution and uh, movements. And this is a really great book that talks about all of these things. And Russell Brand calls it a blueprint for the future. And Daniel Pinchbeck also wrote 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. And he also wrote Breaking Open the Head and a few other books. I really enjoy his writing. This book talks about global cooperation, how we can evolve together as a species and really help each other. You know, we have to face collective threats. For example, there was just a huge hurricane in Texas and we all came together to help each other through it. There's a huge monsoon right now, huge floods in Southeast Asia. And we have to really just work as one moving forward ecologically, socially, politically, and spiritually, and basically launch a new operating system for human society. This book talks about all of that. It's really great. It's called How Soon Is Now. Check it out and enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. So I'm here with Israel Horovitz, and here's a little bit of background info on him and his work. He is an American playwright, director, screenwriter, and actor. He's written over 70 plays, which have been performed all over the world. He's one of the most produced American playwrights in French theater history. It's a real treat to talk to him today. He's a founding artistic director of Gloucester Stage Company and of the New York Playwriters Lab. He's really incredible, and I can probably spend the whole entire podcast talking about his achievements. So. I'm going to go straight into questions. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Did you always know you were a writer? Uh, yeah, I, I suppose I, I wrote a novel when I was uh, 13 years old. It was called Steinberg, Sex and the Saint, Three Things I Knew Nothing About. And I sent it off to, I, 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 I saw on the copyright page of a novel that I admired, uh, a, a legend that said, don't, um, you know, don't copy anything in this. If you want permission to use anything from this book, you have to write to the author's agent and, and or publisher. And uh, so I saw an address, and I and I sent my manuscript uh, off to a publisher in New York. And I got a letter uh, back rejecting the novel, but praising it for having a wonderful childlike quality, because the editor had no idea that I was 13 years old. And my mother saved the letter and gave it to me when I turned 40. It's really amazing how we start out, right? And the chances that we take. And then the letters that we find later on, like especially our parents are really good at saving those things that just remind us. That was the only one that I remembered that got saved. It is amazing because, I mean, in the sense that my uh, father growing up was a truck driver in a little town in Massachusetts. And um, he... uh, went to law school that night when he was 50 and became a lawyer, made a lawyer of himself. But all the time I was growing up, he was a truck driver. He was not uh, a happy person at all. He wasn't happy with his life at all. Uh, But by some chance, somebody gave him some tickets to a play in Boston. I mean, I I didn't know my parents uh, to ever go to a play or talk about going to a play. And there were, I, I have one sister, and there were only three tickets, and somehow I got to go. And um, it was Lorraine Hansberry's Raisin in the Sun, and it was life-changing for me. It's a play that takes place in the home of a black family on the south side of Chicago, and I was sitting there looking at the play and 
thinking, how would I ever get into the home of a black family on the south side of Chicago? This, this play has taken me somewhere. And the mother in the play was very strong, saying things like, in my house there is religion. And, and I can remember when the actors were bowing, and uh, I looked at my family, and I looked at the actors on stage, and I thought, I don't want to go home with that family. I want to go home with that family on stage. And it really uh, was the first time I, I thought about plays as, as being important. And it stayed with me, and it, in, in a sense, influenced uh, my writing, because uh, there's always a sense of place in my writing. I usually write about somewhere. I love plays and movies that have a kind of travelogue quality to them, quite apart from what the play is about. So yeah, you know, how did I get to be a, a playwright uh, with uh, more produced plays in, than any other American playwright in French theater history? I mean, how did I, I've had like 50-something plays of mine translated and performed in France. And uh, when anybody asks me why that happened, I always say, well, in an earlier life I was a snail and the French liked me, but I have no idea how it happened. It's just uh, kind of magical. I was, uh, my play Indian Wants the Bronx was a success and we were invited to play at the Spoleto Festival in uh, the, the Festival de Due Monde in Spoleto, Italy. Uh, and we went over as a group. It was Jill Clayberg and Al Pacino and John Gazal, Matthew Coles. And, and uh, a Swiss-French actress was performing monologues by Beckett and Girardou and Ionesco. And she came up to me uh, and said, would you like to meet Samuel Beckett because he'd like to meet you? And when my heart started beating again, I said, yes, I had very much. And I, I had very strict instructions to go to Paris and I could sit with him, meet him at a at a bar of a restaurant and meet for 30 minutes and I could ask him anything but not about how he wrote. I had no interest in how he wrote whatsoever. And I was a, a kid with hair down on my shoulders, you know, it was the 60s. And um, we sat together for a couple of hours and when I could see he was getting tired, I said, I said to him, do you think we could be friends? And he said, oh, I think we are friends. And we, you know, stayed uh, friends until uh, his death and and beyond, of course. And you know, I think we have our fathers of chance, our actual fathers, and our fathers of choice. The people, or I should say, parents of chance and parents of choice. In this case, it was a man. Uh, and and uh, he was definitely my father of choice, and it was a tremendous. Influence on me. I mean, go to Paris and to meet not, not just a celebrated writer, but an art, a real artist who had um, this tremendous integrity that I had never seen in, in any other human being. And uh, it was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. How did I get from Wakefield, Massachusetts to there? I, I don't know, you know, it's just magical. I didn't stop it, that's the only thing I can say about it. I'm a huge fan, obviously, and I always like your writing because you have the ability to write super diverse characters. From Beirut Rocks, to the Mouth of Babes, to the Indian Wants the Bronx, 
You have a talent for bringing complex characters to life. You can write in the voice of a 94-year-old French woman, a Palestinian woman. You can write in the voice of an Indian man who only speaks Hindi. How do you develop those abilities? I don't, I don't know. I, I really don't know. I mean, people go to their jobs every day and do what they do, and all artists do is just think about life. We just, that's it. I mean, that, that I just, when I watch anybody, you know, on the street, I'm always thinking about, well, why did she choose that clothing? I was very aware of my mortality as a very young kid. I'm not sure everybody is, but I think you develop, when you realize that everybody's life is short, you know, maybe shorter than they think, and we're on our way to the same place, you, you, you are compassionate, and you do, you do, I guess, I don't know, I can't speak for other people, I can only speak for myself, but I uh, actually find women more interesting than men. I, I don't have a problem writing women at all. Uh, I, I think uh, I, I have a tendency to write plays about men that are quite violent because my father was quite violent. I write plays about women that are much more complex. My mother was extremely compassionate, so she, uh, I guess, taught me to listen, you know, and pay attention to people. That's important, right? Well, yes, <laughs> I think it is. I think theater teaches you to listen, and I think it teaches you to be more human. I think it's the only way we can actually go and watch life. But that's only my personal opinion. Well, I, theater, there's theater and there's theater. I mean, American theater uh, plays get shorter and shorter, and people's audiences' attention spans get less and less. And, and let's say, um, in France, you can have a play with a huge, long monologue that goes on for four pages, and audiences are really good listeners, French audiences. And uh, when the actors bow in France and other Western European countries, they can have, you know, 30 bows. The applause goes on and on. And in New York, uh, it's like one bow and they're off the stage. So it's not, I don't think you can talk about theater, you know, just as, as though there's only one. Uh, when I have a play, you're from, were born in Moscow, I have a, a couple of plays in Russia now, but I have a play in the repertory of the Moscow Art Theater, My Old Lady. And when they uh, took the play on, they signed the contract to play it for 12 years. And that's unheard of uh, in France or in America. It just doesn't happen. My real luck is that I love to travel. My mother and father uh, really love to travel. And uh, my father traveled like a truck driver. He would drive just about anywhere the, you know, the car or truck would take him. And uh, they developed a passion for, for travel and, and uh, the first time I went to Paris, I was, in, I was in drama school in London, and I flew to Paris to meet them because he was then a lawyer, and there was some kind of lawyer's convention or something like that in Paris. So my, uh, I've always had, a, uh, I've always found it thrilling to, to travel somewhere to see a play of mine and not stay in a hotel, but stay in the home of somebody associated with the theater, you know, one of my hosts, and really see how people live and listen. And, and uh, so it's, it's, um, 
it, you know, it, it hasn't been the life of, of like a successful Broadway playwright who makes millions of dollars and my, my kids all say that I live on frequent flyer miles. And, but um, it's fine, it's absolutely fine. It's actually really incredible to have the chance to live your dream. Yes, I, I think it is. You First you have to know what it is, though. The telephone doesn't ring for anybody, for anybody. So you have to know what you want and be unafraid of really working hard, you know. Your play, Line, is in its 45th continuous year of Off-Broadway? It's either 45 or maybe it's 46 now. And uh, the woman who owns the theater is 100. Uh, it's just a tiny, I mean, it's, it's been running for 45 years because the theater is so tiny. It has 60 seats, I think, or maybe 70 seats. Edith O'Hara runs that place. The play uh, was originally at Café La Mama in 1967, and I just did a play at Café, that was my first play at Café La Mama. And I just last weekend closed my second play at Cafe La Mama called Man in Snow. I was there Sunday night. Oh, good. Sunday afternoon. Sunday afternoon. That's right. I loved it. And uh, I loved it too. I really. It's a very. It was an unusual play. For, it's the saddest play I've ever written, and it's probably the most adult play I've ever written. But um, so, uh, did I speak to the audience before the show? Because you did. I did. Because I remember saying that. My first play at La Mama, I was the age of a millennial, and now I'm doing my second play at the age of a perennial. <laughs> and and uh, there was almost 50 years in, in between the two. But after La Mama, Line um, had a commercial production at what's now called uh, the Lucille Lortel Theater on Christopher Street. And it was with a then unknown Richard Dreyfus. I played it in the lead at La Mama, and then he, I was replaced myself with Richard Dreyfus. It was a wonderful cast. And we ran for about, I don't know how many months, but um, when it, I was really sad when it closed. I really loved the play. And uh, my daughter Rachel was taking acting classes or theater classes at 13th Street Theater. And I went to pick her up, and, and uh, Edith O'Hara was 50 years younger, and she said, uh, uh, would, you, would you like to do a play here? And I said, well, I'd love to do Line here. It just closed, and, and it makes me sad that it's closed. And, and when she discovered that it was only a, the setting was just a piece of adhesive tape on the, on the, on the floor, and it would cost nothing to... And, and take no time to, to strike it for the next place. She said, sure. And, uh, I, I, and I gathered together uh, a cast with, I can't remember, there was a, I didn't direct it at that point. Carol Ilson was the woman's name. I think she's long gone now. And, uh, and it's been going for 45 years now. Who would have ever imagined it would go for 45 years and still counting? Uh, because the the initial run of the play was seven performances at La Mama, and then it ran for, let's say, five months or something like that uh, at Lortel. So I, it wasn't like, oh, good, she's going to do the play. It'll run for 100 years. It just... Uh, and uh, you know who Chaz Palminteri is? He I wrote, love Chaz. He wrote the... Wrote He's the, friends with my, uh, my friend um, Bob Krakauer. You know right. Bob Krakauer? 
and Tony Spiridakis. They have a no, Manhattan no. Film Institute. I know John Krakauer, the writer, but uh, Chaz was in line for some years, and he wrote Bronx Tale while he was acting in line. I mean, oh uh, wow, yeah, well, was, wow, that's yeah. He played the baseball player in line. It was uh, a long, long time ago. Chaz and I talked a lot about meditation. He's really into meditation, which I did not know. I saw him. I did a reading of a, this of this new play uh, at the Actors Studio, and he was there, and uh, it was great to see him. But uh, Man in Snow, you mentioned Krakauer. Man in Snow came to pass. I was doing a play of mine up in. They were doing a play of mine in Fairbanks in Alaska, and they invited me to come up with my wife and kids as their guests, and so we did. And um, I, I went to the local radio station to promote the play, and Krakauer was there, the guy who wrote Into Thin Air, I think was the name of his, about the disappearance in Alaska. Oh, yes, yes, and the, the man who just, yeah. he just disappeared and, uh, into thin air. And he said, I don't know if you can uh, use this story or not, but uh, you're welcome to it. And he told me the story of a man who was talking to his wife on the cell phone in the cabin, on what was then Mount McKinley, and the cabin got hit by an avalanche, and he spent the last minutes of his life uh, saying goodbye to his wife, which I thought was remarkable. And uh, a couple of weeks after I got back to New York, in, in those days I used to do a play every year for BBC Radio, because I loved radio and we didn't have any here, so. I, I started the relationship with them, and the guy, Ned Chaye, who was the, the head of Radio 4, called me up and he said, well, you know, it's that time now, do you have an idea for a new play? And I thought, wow, that's a great idea for a radio play, the, the husband and wife on the, on the phone. And, uh, and so I started the play, and of course, you know, I, it, it, like always, I think I know what I'm going to write, and then at some point I realize that the play has taken me somewhere, and I had invented the, the dead son, and it became more of that play, Man and Snow, is more of a play about loss and grieving than it is about an avalanche. And then I introduced the, the Japanese man, and this sort, sort of became this way of looking at how we Westerners handle loss and grief versus how an Eastern person would. The Japanese guy in that play, uh, the Western guy said, I lost my son and I don't know how to go on at all. And the, the Japanese man instantly said, well, you must have wonderful memories of your son. And, and it was really um, exciting to me to do uh, that kind of research. Anyway, um, in the play, the daughter also says when she's having that really, really tense argument with her father, she's like, I just remember all the good times. I don't focus on the fact that he died. And that was such a tense scene. And it well, was so I think great. The, scene, the scene with the father and daughter, when I first wrote the play, I think it's a very kind of accurate uh, portrayal of a daughter and a father where, where there's a son in the family and the father prefers the son, knows how to speak to the son, doesn't know how to speak to the daughter. And the daughter, you know, is successful and uh, no amount of success can stop her from chasing after her father's love. And, and uh, I, I think that, I mean, it, it, it could well be 
uh, you know, the the younger brother of a boy who's the favorite in the family, but I think more often than not, with fathers and daughters, it's a problem. And uh, and I think more than anything else in the play, uh, women responded to that uh, particular scene with the daughter and, and uh, you know, would say to me, well, how do you know things like that? Well, you know, I have two daughters and... I have a lot of kids. Yeah. You do have a lot of kids, which leads me to another question. How do you balance family and work? You seem to be really great with both. What is the secret? Well, I don't have kids at home now, and uh, it surprises me that I probably write less than I did <laughs> when, it, when it was chaos uh, in the house with kids running around. I think I involved them as much as I could in my work, I always traveled with kids. I remember Beckett talking about James Joyce, always traveled with his kids. Wherever he was invited in the world, he always showed up with his wife and kids, or, it's, or just his kids, or so, a kid. Or, and that imp impressed me no end, because it was just at a time when I had three little kids, and I thought, Jesus, how can I balance? all of this. I knew how to balance getting my work done in the morning and the kid, you know, when the kids went off to school, they went off to school. So I knew that I had a very limited amount of time and I didn't answer the telephone and we didn't have Facebook or, you know, computers at that point. So you could really control uh, interruptions. The typewriter didn't send you a message the way the computer does. Um, and I was, Everything shut off until one o'clock, and I got up early, made the kids breakfast, uh, got them off to school, and then I wrote until one o'clock, and then I would listen to my answer machine and or read mail and answer mail, and then I, in fact, I, I used to go for a run before and come back and wake the kids up for school, and then when I finished writing, I would go for another run and go to the gym, and I always used, uh, uh, sport in balance with, I think when I was very young, I realized that writers were probably the worst looking group of people I had ever met. And, <laughs> and I thought, uh, gosh, your, your body has to be more than something to carry your head from room to room. And so I, I discovered that um, sport would help me decompress a lot, especially running was very good for that. It was singular although I ran in a lot of races, but it was, it was, um, it, it didn't take a team is what I'm trying to say. You could just open the door, go out and run. And, and, uh, and when running became like a thing in society, then it was a perfect excuse to leave, you know, a boring person. You say, oh my God, it's time I have to go for my run. And you'd go. And uh, my, my wife was English national marathon champion when she was younger and, and, uh, record holder for the UK. And speaking of time, I have two more questions for you. Sure. One, um, what is your advice for putting together a successful play? I think plays might be a good analogy for how to launch a startup. A lot of people listen to my show about how to launch businesses, right? But I think businesses in the end are all about creativity. So if you put together a really good cast and you kind of let them do their thing, you know you hopefully will have a good show. Well. I was never shy about starting a theater myself. I, I founded Gloucester Stage Company 38 years ago, and it was as simple as just saying to people, hey, I'm going to start a theater. Do you want to be part of it? Nobody said no. 
Right. And, and I think most things in life just take some kind of leadership, you know, of somebody. And I knew that I couldn't exist without a theater because I couldn't wait for, you know, whatever the contraption was that got to play on commercially. And um, so that kind of spread in, in I, I remember uh, my play line was being done for the thousandth time in France. And uh, I had been the, the president of a jury at a film festival in Biarritz. And, uh, uh, we all fell asleep and during a, the sc a screening we were watching like eight films a day and this um, Polish French actress woke me up and we started the film again I, I called the projectionist and that was the film that won the won the prize of the festival I never forgot that because we could have all slept through it as easily as not that woman called me up and said that her, her former students at Courflorent at a, at a theater school in Paris were doing my play line, Le Premier, and would I come and see them do it? And I said, no, don't make, you know, I've seen it 10,000 times, don't make me come see your former students do it. <laughs> and she reminded me that she woke me up and blah, blah, blah. And so I went, and it was the best production of a line I had ever seen in my life, period. It was brilliant. And they were all young kids, and they had just finished their theater courses. Let's say they were 21 years old. And they said to me, we, we all stood around and had a drink afterwards. And they said, we're terrified. We've, school's over. What, what do we do? How do, how, do you, how do you have a career in theater? And I said, well, it's so obvious. Just stay together and keep doing this play that you're doing so well. It costs nothing to produce. And they said, well, how do we do that? And I said, well, there's a theater that did it for 500 performances in the 13th arrondissement, and uh, and they do a system. It's called a patage. They you bring your show and they split the box office with you, so you don't have to rent the theater. And and so they went to that theater and they played there for like three years, and now they're one of the foremost troops in France. And and and. It's a good story because uh, sometimes your best contacts are the people that are sitting next to you. You you just can't wait for the telephone to ring because it's it's not gonna it, it, it's not gonna ring. So I I don't know about starting businesses. I've never done that, but I suppose a play is a business of sorts. It's not a good business, but you can make a. A small fortune in nonprofit theater if you start out with a, a large fortune, but um, uh, it, it's the, it's the same sort of thing of just gathering talented people. Art is not democratic. This is something I learned very early on. You can't cast the wrong actor in a play because you love that actor personally. You have to cast the actor because you love them professionally, because they're absolutely the best. So that's really important. You, you're always searching for the most talented people. And the people you saw in Man and Snow were not famous actors, but they're one, they were wonderful actors, and they were beautifully cast, I thought. I directed it, and, and I took a hell of a long time casting it. We workshopped it a million times, and I didn't open it until it was ready to open. I didn't want to. It's hard to write a play. 
and it's easy to waste a play, to just cast it badly, put it on in a theater where it doesn't count, and it's, it's over. And God forbid the New York Times reviews it, that's the end of it, you know, it may never be done again. So, um, it's, uh, I'm a big advocate of courage, not uh, obnoxious uh, ambition, but courage. And, and uh, to know where your strengths are, and, and, uh, and, and not shy, shy from what you do well. Uh, and, and there you go, anyway. How did you raise the funds to open up Gloucester Stage? We opened it with no money. You just opened, you just yeah, did it, right? Yeah, there was a guy, there was a, a guy who uh, owned the Blackburn Tavern in Gloucester. And uh, he had worked for Theatre Company of Boston, I think, at some point, and he was kind of a theater rat. And he had a back room, and he just he put up the back room, and I, I, for for no money, put a little article in the local Gloucester newspaper, uh, saying I was going to start a theater, and there was a meeting in that room at five o'clock on a Tuesday, and fifty people showed up, and a, and a, a guy said, uh, uh, I said, what do you do for a living? He said, I'm I'm an electrician. I said, okay, you're the lighting designer. What do you do? Well, I teach English. Okay, you're the publicity director. And I really wow. went around the room, and I, I knew enough to assign all of the necessary roles to have a theater, and everybody was thrilled. And the first play we did was a play of mine called The Former One-on-One -on -one Basketball Champion. It was with my son, Adam, who's one of the Beastie Boys, and he was 12, and he was great. <laughs> as a kid and a, and a, and a, the guy who played the was supposed to was supposed to be a six foot six, washed up uh, African American basketball player. In fact, was a little Jewish lawyer, <laughs> but he was he was the only actor we had to get it started, and and uh, he's a judge now. That guy in in Massachusetts. Somebody just told me that. But um, the most important moment was. Uh, turning to the woman who is the publicity director, and I said, oh my God, is anybody going to come to this? Because we were rehearsing, rehearsing, rehearsing. We opened the door and there was a line up the street and around the corner because there wasn't a theater in town and, the, and, the, and there needed to be a theater in town. And now we have our own beautiful, it's a wonderful old warehouse right on the harbor and and it has 200 seats and we're 38 years old and it's great. and it's. It's not great and wonderful because I did something. It's because the, the community needed it, and people will always will always do. And the theater is so, so much larger than than it was when I was doing it with no money. Now that it has some money, I suppose it's riskier. And I I was its unpaid artistic director for twenty eight years. And when I felt it was strong enough to hand it over, I handed it over to somebody who got paid, and now people get paid to work there. But uh, I was perfectly happy to do it because it was an artistic home for me, and it was a place to show my new work. And and I could and and my plays would sell tickets and help support the theater. So I felt that I had a mission, and I have to write this. You know, when my kids were little, I felt I had to write the play to support my kids. And then at some point I had to write the play to support the theater, and now I finally have realized that I have to write a play because I love doing it. <laughs> and uh, 
You made your dream come true. Well, I also think you, you when you're when you're young, it's all me, me, me. What and then at some point, if you're if you're lucky enough to have an audience show up for your plays, you start to think about what do people need? Because what interests the public isn't always in the best public interest. Sometimes you really have to give people what they think they don't want and do it well to, to, to just get people thinking and changing if, if, if they possibly can. And, and uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a different intent now, I think. And again, it comes back to what we were talking about before, of just watching people and live, you know, and thinking about what the people, and I mean, people will always need some kind of singing and dancing musical comedy to just, you know, so they can like tune out from what's going on. And I don't, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to be negative about that. I just don't do that. It doesn't, it doesn't interest me at all. And and uh, th there's a place for that, but I think there's a more important place for for serious work, and and that's the stuff that sticks. That's the stuff that you know goes on for centuries. And uh, so, what's your dream now? Like as an adult, now that you're a dream, what what is the next dream? Well, just to be able to keep going with this, I guess. Really, I mean. It's all, you always dream for your kids, and you know I, I hope that they find uh, good places and good lives. And, and uh, you know I'd like to stay healthy and travel and and, and keep doing this because I love doing it. I mean I, I directed a movie a couple of years ago when I was 74, I think, and I, I remember doing an interview in this room and with the New York Times lady. She was very nice and she said, why, why do you want to do that? And I hadn't really conceptualized it and I thought, because I don't want to keep repeating what I always do. I want to do something that really scares the shit out of me a little bit. And because that kind of buzz is really good. It's good to be. And I hadn't been scared that way for a long time. And so I did the movie, and that was a tremendous challenge. To I mean, how do you do a movie? I don't know. I wouldn't know that. And I had to learn, and I had the advantage of having my wonderful daughter Rachel, who's a film producer. She produced uh, Moneyball and About Schmidt, and she's really great. And we just partnered with it, and that was the you know one of the best parts of it was just being with my daughter and working on on something side by side like that, making it happen. We had a, I have Maggie Smith and Kevin Klein, and we had a great cast, and it was it was joyous, terrifying, absolutely terrifying. I cannot tell you how scared I was, you know, with 300 people show up every day with a question, and you're supposed to have an answer, and I mean, it's just I had no experience at all doing that. I think you did a great job. It was a great film. I, I thought it was a really good film. I mean, it's an honest film, and and uh, it was. It it did what the it did what the play set out to do. It it really talked about divorce and how it how it really you know how parents can really screw up their kids can be fifty years old and they're still their kids and they're still chasing their love and trying to sort all of that out. And uh, I wanted to write about that and I wanted to you know I started out thinking I was writing a love letter to Paris and I ended up. Uh, you know, with with this film.
Anyway. Israel, thank you so much, and I love your work, and please continue doing more of it. Of course. It makes the world you so much better. You too. Thanks for tuning into the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share it on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Dream Nation Love. It's not Dream Nation Podcast, it's Dream Nation Love, because I think my single mission in life is to teach people how to love a little bit more, and together we can save the world. So it's Dream Nation Love, share it with your friends, have a great day, and go out and make the world a better place.